Pastor Chris's podcast. I've been reflecting a lot on mothers, as probably many of you have been, and reflecting on my own mother. And one thing that I remember, it's, there's so many different memories that you, you have of your mother probably, but one that stuck out to me as I was thinking about it was when I moved out on, out of my mom's house for the first time. So I'd graduated from high school and was getting ready to move to Marietta from Macon to go move into the dorm at Southern Tech for my freshman year of college. And um, I never really thought much. I mean, I, it was always a powerful memory, but now that I've had my own kids move out and, and go off to college, it's something that just comes back to me even more. And I remember that um, I was going to drive up by myself, but we went out and had lunch together, sort of like the last lunch together or whatever, and uh, we went to the Texas Cattle Company, and we sat down and just had a chance to talk and, you know, all of this. And she kept asking, you know, you sure you don't need me to come with you, you know? And, of course, my thinking was just, you know, I really want to do this on my own. I want to get out and um, go up there and move in. And I don't really need, you know, help with the luggage and all of that. It wasn't until, you know, I was a parent my own and sending my own children off to college, it really dawned on me more about how she really wanted to go with me. But uh, I wanted to, I needed to do that myself, and so I did. But I always remembered that. And um, even though I moved out of my mother's house that day, we remained connected. And this was before, you know, before you had a chance to get and send emails and you couldn't make, you know, phone calls back then were still, you know, long, what do they call them? Long distance. They were long distance. You had to pay for them. So there weren't a lot of phone calls, but um, there were phone calls that went back and forth between us during the week. And, of course, I would come home every weekend to visit um, with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, but also with my mother, and to be back in her home. So we stayed connected. We were bound by love, and we are bound by love, and always will be, regardless of whether we live together in the same house. We will always be family. There's that bond that's always there. And I'm so thankful for all that my mom did to raise me, to sacrifice for me, for her love, and for her continued support. I always enjoy talking with her, and Sunday afternoons tends to be the, the, the time we have a, a, a conversation on the phone every week, and, and she's always asking how I'm doing, and, and of course is, continues to support and encourage me. And I appreciate it so much. And um, I think that leads into what the Lord gave me to talk about today, because today I want to talk about family. But I want to broaden the concept of family beyond your biological family. Because Jesus taught that family is deeper than blood relations. Jesus said in Matthew twelve fifty, anyone who does my will, or anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And the church is a family. The church is a family. We are connected to each other by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And I want to talk about this connectionalism among the followers of Christ today. And to do that, I want us to look at Acts chapter 15, and we're going to look through um, verses 22 through 29. But let me lay a little context down before we read. For my text, we'll be reading from Acts 15. And this tells us about a special council the early followers of Christ held in Jerusalem to deal with an important issue that in the growing family of Christ, the church. You see, Jesus was Jewish. The first disciples were Jewish. Almost all of the earliest followers of Christ were Jewish. And they followed Jewish customs laid out in the Old Testament, you know, things from the, the law of Moses, like don't eat pork and Worship on the Sabbath day, don't, don't work on the Sabbath day. Celebrate the Passover. And there were like 613 different laws that they had in the Jewish religion. And those early Jewish Christians still followed all of those rules pretty much. But as the years went by, more and more non-Jewish people were becoming Christians. And people were asking legitimate questions like, Do non-Jewish people have to follow all of these Jewish religious rules in order to be Christians? Because most of those people that were coming to Jesus, they were like, well, we want to follow Jesus, but we don't necessarily want to be Jewish. We want to follow Jesus. And they didn't know what were the rules about what was the proper protocol here. And then, of course, there's a really important issue, especially if you were a man, Because in order to be a Jew, the initiation rite for males is circumcision. And um, for a person who is born into a Jewish family, that usually happens when you're a baby. And, you know, as painful as that would be, most babies don't remember (laughs) the day they were circumcised. But a lot of these Gentile believers were coming to faith as adults. And so there's a really important question on their mind is, if I want to be a Christian, do I have to be circumcised in order to be one? And a lot of people were saying, well, <clears throat> no, I mean, you, don't, you can follow Jesus and not be a Jewish person. So you don't have to be circumcised. Other people were saying, no, 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 no. In order to follow Jesus, you've got to, be a, you've got to follow the Jewish customs. You need to be circumcised. And so the church had a a big conference to discuss the issue to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit to answer this question and make a decision. Let's read about what they decided. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 22, it says, Then the apostles and the elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church's leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. So let's pause here to consider something that this first, verse 22 tells us. The early church felt that it was important to speak as one body, to all be together on this issue. And that's important because Christians are in connection, going all the way back to the New Testament. Christians are in connection together. We're not just individuals. And so much in our world today, in, in, in America, where we, we, are, uh, we value individualism, we sometimes think, you know, what I believe in 
My Christian walk is between me and God. It doesn't involve anyone else. But really, that's not biblical. In the Bible, Christians lived together in community. They made decisions together. They worked together. And it was not just individuals. And it was not even just individual congregations. So we read through this, you'll see that they cared about what people outside of their congregation believed. Going on in verse 23... This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia. Greetings. So I don't know if you can see the map that's on the screen. And this letter was going out to a geographical area that is about the size of the southeastern United States. So they were making decisions that were going to affect people in this all around the Mediterranean world. So if you think about the United States, we're talking about an area that goes from way up in Maryland and Virginia all the way down to Florida and all the way across from Georgia all the way over to say like Texas. This was the amount of geographical area that this ruling was covering because this is where the church was growing. And then in verse 24, it says, We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we didn't send them. So he's saying here, These people that have been telling you you've got to be circumcised and you've got to become a Jewish person who follows Jewish rules, is they didn't come from us. They didn't have the authority to speak for us. So we're sending you our verdict. And then verse 25 going on, it says, So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Paul and Barnabas who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. So in other words, this is their official ruling for the connection. Everyone, they're saying, everyone in our family will follow this ruling. And it's a family that goes beyond just what happens in Jerusalem. It goes all the way up to Galatia and Syria and Cilicia. And they say in verse 28 and verse 29, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. And so they sign their name at the bottom of the letter. And they send this on to all of these Christians spread out over this vast area, and they say, if you are part of our church family, this is what you will do. And there's three main takeaways that I want you to see from the scripture today. I'll name them first, and then we'll go into detail on them. Number one is that the church is connectional. Number two is it's not about rules, it's about grace. And third, Christians have the simplest of rules. So let's look at the first one. First of all, the church is connectional. Christianity is not an individualistic faith. Faith is not a private matter. We are a community. We are a family. 
what you do and what you believe matters to me. And what I do and believe affects you. And so we live together. We worship together. We serve together. We even make decisions together. We even do missions together. So we pool our money together in, in order to uh, do more good for the sake of God's kingdom. And here's the hardest part for most people, I think, in America. Is that our connection even goes beyond our local church. That's hard for us. Because we here, especially in the South, we kind of, a lot of us kind of, we have an attachment to our church, like our congregation. And I love Pleasant Grove. I know you love Pleasant Grove too. I've been here at Pleasant Grove. I've been a part of this church for longer than I've been a part of any other church in my entire life. I love y'all. And I love this place. I love this space. I feel something special when I come in. I know you do too. And it's easy to feel a loyalty to your own congregation, the place where your child was baptized or where you had a funeral for someone you loved or where you, your family grew up and you maybe started out when you were a child and you, then you had your own kids and now you've got grandkids and all of these things are attached to your, your building where you walked with Christ and with people you loved. And it's so easy to fall into the trap where we're all you care about is your own local congregation. This is my church. And you know, we love the other churches down the road, and we know people that go to them too, but somehow there can be this thing, even if we don't say it out loud, in the back of our minds we think, yeah, but I want my church to be the best. And I want my church to be the one that grows. And I want to be my church to be, the, I want to be proud of it, like everybody in town talks about how great my church is. And yeah, I want the other ones to do well too, but I'd rather my church be better. And sometimes we could even fall into the trap where we think we're in competition with other churches. Like, you know, I want people coming here, not there, because I want my church to be doing the best. But our local church, Pleasant Grove, is only one part of Christ's whole church. That's connectionalism. We're all connected. Our local church is part of a larger household. And so, I put this graphic on the screen to sort of help us look through this. We start out as the local church, but our household is our denomination. So we go up in the United Methodist Church. Our church is one of the greater household of the United Methodist Church. I put question marks besides UMC because we are going through a season right now where we're questioning if we are part, we want to continue to be part of the UMC. If we are all living in a house, and here's where that question mark comes up for so many of us here at Pleasant Grove. is, You know, if you live in the same house together, and you want to live in peace and unity within your household, you agree to abide by certain household rules, right? That's something that so many people go through when they get to that stage of life, when they're just about ready to move out 
from their mom and dad's house and get out on their own, right? But you might be old enough to be on your own, but if you still live in your mom and dad's house, what's that thing they sometimes will say to you? As long as you live in this house, you live by my rules, right? And you either live by them or you get out on your own and you build your own house and you have your own rules and you can make your rules for your own house. But when you're in your parents' house, you live by their rules. And this is kind of where we are in the whole confusion in the United Methodist Church right now. Because we feel like we, the rules are changing. and What are the rules? And who's abiding by the rules? And we're trying to abide by the rules, but other people maybe necessarily aren't. We're trying to figure that out. If you can't live by the rules then you've got a problem. And then there's the other issue, and, and this is another thing that the United Methodist Church's local congregations is dealing with. It's okay, Well, when you move out of your parents' house, who gets the stuff? Because, you know, your, your mom or your dad could say, well, you can move out, but you can't take the car. And you say, what? And then maybe you say, well, you bought me the car, so yeah, it's yours. But what if you bought the car? What if you worked and you earned the money and you bought the car? And maybe the car is in your mom and dad's name, but you're the one that bought it. And so you have to come to an agreement on who gets the car, what's right and what's fair. And that's one of the big struggles that's going on in the UMC right now. Well, you've got the local church, then you've got the household and then beyond that, you've got the tribe. In our situation, we are a Methodist church. But Methodism goes beyond just the United Methodist Church. There are a lot of different United, or there's a lot of different Methodist denominations that believe similarly. They follow a lot of the theology that came down through John Wesley about infant baptism, grace, sacraments. And we have a lot of common, we have more in common with churches like um, the Nazarene Church and Salvation Army than we do with Baptists and Pentecostals and Roman Catholics. We're all Christians, but we have theology that is more similar to one group or the other. And so we call our tribe the Methodist tribe or the Wesleyan tribe. Next up would be the Church Universal Every Christian throughout all time, in every place, and in every different denomination is part of our family. We are brothers and sisters in the, with them if they believe in Jesus Christ. And thus we can respect and we can appreciate and we can work with all Christians regardless of denomination. We are all followers of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So you can think about that in terms of like your family, right? You've got your house with your household rules, but then maybe you've got some extended family. You've got aunts and uncles and cousins. They've got the same last name as you, or maybe they don't, but they're part of your family. And then you can move on beyond that. And this is how we think of it in the church as well. So the first takeaway that t about today is that we are connected as Christians. We're connected with every other believer that follows Jesus Christ. And that's important. You can't 
discount that. But the second takeaway for today is that it's not about rules. It's all about grace. Following Jesus is not about rules. It's all about grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And the Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts 15 determined that. They settled that once and for all. They rejected Jewish legalism that tried to say that you have to follow Jewish laws and be circumcised in order to be a Christian. Some Jewish Christians were trying to say that you had to follow all of that stuff in order to be saved. And the Jerusalem council says, no, all you have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. Now today there's still some people who try to say that in order to be a real Christian, you've got to do certain things. And they try to say, you gotta, you're not really saved unless you do this. And they'll tag on whatever this will happen to what they think it is. For some Pentecostals, they try to say that in order to be a real Christian, you've got to be able to speak in tongues and show the power of the Holy Spirit is moving in your life. Some Baptists would say, you're not a real Christian unless you have been immersed underwater as a believer, and you've been baptized. Some, and this is not all, not all Pentecostals, not all Baptists, it's some. Some Seventh-day Adventists would say, you're not really a Christian if you worship on Sunday, because you're supposed to worship on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. And you need to do that, because the Bible tells you you need to do that. And this is really goes back to all the same stuff that they were talking about at the Jerusalem Council. They said, no, you don't have to do all of those things. The Jerusalem Council settled it. It said, it's not about rules. It's about God's grace received through Jesus Christ. And that leads to the third takeaway. In order that Christians can live together in grace and live together in unity and peace. In connection, the Jerusalem Council laid out the simplest rules for the earliest Christians to follow. It gave us four simple rules. They said, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat blood. And some of y'all are thinking, that ain't no problem. Don't eat meat from strangled animals. And number four, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, numbers one, two, and three don't really make a lot of sense to us today because we don't live in the same world that they did in the first century. All of that, rules one, two, and three, all has to do with idolatry and worshiping false gods. You see, because when, you know, I don't know what you're having for dinner today for Mother's Day. Maybe you're going to grill some hamburgers or have a steak or whatever. But you go to the grocery store and you just buy some meat. You don't think anything about it. In the first century, when you went and bought some meat, meat was almost always had been sacrificed in a ritual religious ceremony. So every time you went and bought some meat, somewhere a priest had slaughtered it. And he had said some prayers and, you know, done a little dance shook shook a little smoke around or whatever and that was how they got the meat 
And Jews had a real problem with eating just any old meat because they were not supposed to eat any meat that had been sacrificed to a false god. If it had been slaughtered by a Jewish priest, then it was kosher, and they could partake of that meat. It was just fine. But if it had been sacrificed to Baal or Zeus or some other god, then they weren't supposed to eat it. And so when you're talking about eating blood or animals that have been strangled or sacrificed to an idol, this is what they're talking about. We don't have that problem today. I don't know of any religious ceremonies that are out there sacrificing animals and selling it in the marketplace, thankfully. But the main point is what they're saying is, and, and Paul addresses this later on in one of his letters in 1 Corinthians. He says, look, we all know that there are no other gods. And that idols don't really exist. I mean, there's only one God. So if an animal's been sacrificed to some other god, then it doesn't really count anyway. But if someone sees you eating that meat... And they think, oh, that meat was sacrificed to an idol. They might stumble because of what they see you doing. So the Jerusalem council says, just don't do it. Abstain from that kind of meat. You don't want to cause anybody to stumble. And then number four deals with actual sin that is abhorrent to God and destructive to people. that tears up communities and causes all kinds of harm. Sexual immorality. And the Jerusalem Council instructs Christians, abstain from sexual immorality. And Jesus said that too. The Apostle Paul says that. Jude says that. All throughout the New Testament and through the Old Testament, it says, don't be sexually immoral. Nowhere in the Bible does it allow the faithful to be sexually immoral. And so really what we've got here is just two simple rules. Don't be a stumbling block, and don't be sexually immoral. Have faith in Christ, trust in him to save you, and then live these ways. Don't be a stumbling block, and don't be sexually immoral. So from 613 Jewish laws of the Old Testament, Christians come down to just two. And of course, we understand that living faithfully for Jesus requires wisdom we must let the Holy Spirit guide us to discern what is the right thing to do in any situation. But it's really simple. And God is full of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the Jerusalem Council, Gentile believers were welcomed into the church. They could be part of the family. And they joined in droves. More and more people became part of Christ's family. And within a few years, there were more Gentile Christians than Jewish ones. So as we close today, I want to end with this. Have you become part of the family? Are you part of the family of God? What does that mean? Well, first of all, how do you become a part of the family? The very first thing is you have to give your life to Christ. You have to turn away from your own selfish, selfish desires, repent of that, and give your life to Christ. Say, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. 
I'm going to live for Christ. Second thing as part of that is you are baptized. Baptism is the new circumcision. It's the entrance ritual to enter into the church. Third, when we join the family, we promise to support the church with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. And if you've done these, you've you've joined the church. And if you've done it, I encourage you to reflect, what does that mean for you? Are you being faithful? Are you being faithful to the family? Are you living by the rules of the family? And secondly, I would say that if you need to do any of these, I would love to help with you. I would love to talk with you about it. Because when you take the step of joining a church, it means that you are going deeper in the faith. You know, it's kind of like when your, your son or your daughter, when they are dating someone, maybe they've been dating them for years, and, and you just love their little girlfriend or their little boyfriend, and they're almost like, it's almost like they become part of your family, right? But they're not officially part of your family until they say the vows and are married. And then they are legally part of your family. And same's true in the church, you know. A lot of people attend a church and are part of it for, you know, participate in every bit of it. And they're just like family. But until they take the step of joining, there's always something missing. But once they do that, they can go deeper. And I would love to welcome more and more people to be part of our family. And if you'd like to do that, I'd love to talk with you. So as we close today, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for our mothers and what they have taught us about love and sacrifice and what it means to be truly part of a family. Thank you for my mom that did that so well for us through good times and hard times. Father, I thank you that you've given us, the church, the official family of God. Christ established the church to be the place where his believers would come together to work together, to serve together, to worship together, to grow together, to laugh together and to cry together, and to be family. I pray, Father, that you will help each one of us to be part of the family, to be good members of the family. And I pray, Lord, for those that that would be questioning if and when is the right time to take that step to be a part of your family. And, Lord, we give ourselves to you this day and always. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.